welcome to The Breakdown with Fred Corp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher. And I'm Michael Broadcorp. In today's episode, we are back with two guests to break down the legalization of marijuana that came into effect this week on August 1st. We have a rare repeat occurrence with our first uh, with our first guest today, Curtis Hanna. Curtis first joined us when Michael was out to discuss efforts at the Capitol to pass, pass recreational marijuana legalization into law. Today, we are going to have Curtis help us break down on the legalization rollout and the recent dust-up about underage use penalties or lack thereof. Next, we will be joined by Luke Hellier, mayor of Lakeville. Luke is a longtime friend of us both, but today he will be helping us break down the complications that pot legalization has made for local elected officials in cities across the state. Finally, we'll end our show with typical tweets of the week and food fight with Broadcorp and Becky. This week, our relationship may crumble as we fight over top cooking. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. I mean, that's some of your best work. I try, you know. The best work. I want to disclose at the beginning of this recording, we're recording remotely. Becky is in the great state of Minnesota and I'm in the state of Iowa. I'm here for a family reunion what Governor Walls would call the Deep South, which I don't think was very funny. But I'm in Iowa, and there's a couple of things I want to point out. I want to give a shout out to my in-laws who are celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary. Oh, that's a good Other members of my family do, but I want to give a shout out to my in-laws for celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary. I'm down here in Iowa. I'm in Dyersville, Iowa, which is home of the Field of Dreams. An interesting little factoid, my wife's relatives used to own the house where the Field of Dreams is at. And so we're down in Dyersville. My wife is from a small town in Petersburg, Iowa, which is just outside Dyersville. But we're staying in Dyersville today. The other thing I wanted to point out, Becky, um, and this is a bit of a surprise, I went to a reception for my wife's in-laws, and there were two food options at the, the buffet. And it was ham or chicken. And piggybacking off a previous food fight that we had, I went around the table and asked people what what their preferred choice was and then did a picture side by side. A ham finished a very distant second. Oh, come on. Into the realization, and this isn't meant as an insult, but it's going to sound like one, that it was the children, little kids, who liked the ham the most. I don't know what the message is for you on that, but... It was the little kids that seemed to like the ham the most. It was a secondary. And again, I think it reaffirmed my position, which is that ham is not a main attraction, that it's at best an opening act. Um, can we can we, can we we discuss for one second that Turkey didn't even get invited to the dance? It was ham and chicken. Yeah, well, it's not a turkey. I mean, you, you wouldn't have turkeys. It's, it was roasted chicken or ham. And... I will, and I meant this has meant no disrespect to the food that was served. I'm sure the ham was delicious, but in just in a standard test, not a blind taste test, people had an option. They're going to pick ham. They're going to pick chicken. Overwhelmingly, they picked chicken, and it was the people that picked the ham who have, as we come know, don't have fully formed brains yet. <laughs> okay. Never get ham. For the record, I would also probably chicken. I eat more chicken than ham. Turkey is not chicken. It's different. I'll give you. I did eat ham yesterday, and it was delicious. Well, I just wanted to bring analysis to the, the, this discussion, and I look forward to a good show that we're about to have. Thanks for being a good sport. Oh, anytime. The things I put up with. All right, let's get into it. So we are going to welcome our first guest for this week, our first repeat uh, guest for the podcast, Curtis Hanna. Curtis joined us um, about a month ago as the drug reform lobbyist for Minnesota Normal, now has a new title, new job as the public policy and government relations specialist at Blunt Strategies, and here to talk all things legalization of recreational marijuana. Thanks for joining us again, Curtis. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Uh Curtis, I just wanted to start uh, and say I was off when you were on previously, and I was really impressed by the conversation and the discussion, and I just really appreciate coming back on. So thanks for joining us again today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Appreciate it. So this week was the big week, officially legal. Um, Maybe if you want to start with kind of the rollout, what it means, 
now that uh, it's it's past August 1st and, and recreational marijuana is officially legal, uh, what does that mean? What does the law actually detail uh, for folks buying, selling, consuming, all of the above? Sure. Well, there might have been a chance that people that are listening to this podcast smelled a little bit of more freedom in the air yesterday, uh, but public consumption of cannabis uh, was made legal. So smoking the flower or the bud form is now able to be done uh, at a statewide level. It's legal uh, in public. Um, at the city level, there are some cities that have put in uh, some bans to say that you can't smoke in certain parts of the town or in uh, certain sections, or, or there's some complete bans. But for the most part, most Minnesotans are able to consume. Um, it's not able to be done in multifamily housing right now. Uh, however, if you live in a, a triplex, duplex, or single-family home, you can also smoke in, inside, uh, even if you're a renter. Uh, and also, there have been vendors selling uh, cannabis seeds. And so individuals in Minnesota can now put some seeds in a, in a pot in their um, house and grow up to eight plants, four of them uh, flowering. And so I just see it as an expansion of liberty. Uh, less, less government seems like a good thing in, from my political perspective. So I'm extremely excited and looking forward to uh, experiencing more freedom with everybody. Where can Minnesotans buy it as of yesterday? Sure. So as of yesterday, there has been one dispensary that opened uh, in the state, and that was the Red Lake Nation. Uh, the dispensary is called Native Care. It's located about a half hour north of Bemidji. Um, there is a, a second uh, native uh, Minnesota tribe that decided to also start um, selling products to adults over the age of 21. And I believe that that's going to start in about two weeks. Uh, but as of right now, the, the choices are fairly limited. Um, but gifting cannabis to other individuals was also legalized up to two ounces. Was that, now I was a little surprised by the, only the one location. Was that part of the bill language that would limit it or do you expect more to blossom up here relatively soon? Yeah. So the bill language was not, uh, did not say that we can only have one dispensary. That was a result of the fact that the tribes in Minnesota have uh, sovereignty to to kind of make their own laws, and so they decide they voted themselves to decide to to start selling. Um, and the issue here is that we don't have the the required state agency set up yet that will oversee the licensure for these dispensaries, uh, and so. Uh, we need to first hire a director, and then we need to build out that state agency, go through the regulatory process, and then they'll start issuing licenses. So it'll take a little time. Um, I saw this week that it looked like there was some 100, 150 applicants for for this position to to head up this department. Do you know anything about um, any any top contenders or what that looks like or, or when we should expect to have um, have somebody in place there? I believe that they wanted the start date to be on September 1st. And so I would expect an announcement to be made within the coming weeks as to who was selected. Uh, however, um, I don't really know uh, a lot about top contenders. I, I've heard the, the name Chris Tolkis uh, mentioned because she had been heading up the Office of Medical Cannabis here in Minnesota. Um, but I am not sure of other potential uh, applicants, but it sounds like they have a lot to choose from. Do you think, based on the timing, what is a, a year from now, what do you think the availability is across the state? Yeah, I, 
I've heard that the suggestion, the the thought is about opening up other state regulated dispensaries will be about a year and a half. And so it seems unfortunate that it's pushed out that far. But uh, at the same time, it sounds like the state of Minnesota wants to have very regulated products and have well vetted businesses in place uh, to open their doors for Minnesotans to buy from them. One thing that we saw a little um, controversy, dust up, um, issue surrounding was um, marijuana use when it comes to underage individuals, those under the age of 21. It appears there was possible, you know, some steps taken to to uh, reduce penalties or remove penalties for anybody under 21 that um, may uh, get, quote unquote, busted, I guess, uh, for smoking marijuana. Um but then there's some 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 thought that the laws didn't don't accurately reflect that, or maybe uh, another step or two might be needed for that. Can you speak a little bit to the author's intentions with this and and how that um, how that played out? Sure. So a a MinPost journalist was invited by one of the drafters of the cannabis legalization bill, uh, the nonpartisan attorney that works for the Minnesota House. Uh, ben Johnson. Um, he was invited to go to a talk that Ben was giving at the Minnesota Bar Association. And at the talk, uh, he mentioned to the journalist, uh, Peter Callaghan, that they got kind of creative in how they addressed underage possession and use of cannabis in that they took away um, or they did not include any specific penalty, uh, even though they said explicitly that it was prohibited for underage people, uh, people under 21, to possess and use cannabis. So the claim was, since there's no penalty included next to the prohibition, that it was actually legal and only cities would be able to prohibit that sort of act under city ordinance. Um, in that same article that the, that the Men Post journalists put out about this, the Senate uh, DFL chief author of the bill um, said that this uh, kind of agreed with that interpretation and also went uh, beyond that to say that it was an intentional decision uh, to have underage possession and use be uh, legal at the state level. Um, but within hours of the article coming out, I reached out to Peter and told him that there's a separate chapter of law that uh, makes it so it, it explains how to interpret the other chapters. And in that chapter, there's a section that says if an act is prohibited in Minnesota statutes, but there is no penalty next to it, that it just defaults to a petty misdemeanor, ticketable offense. And uh, very quickly after that, the Senate author, uh, Lindsay Port, um, came out saying that she agreed with that analysis and the, the governor's office did as well. Um, so I guess, you know, obviously there's it seems to me now, I, as I mentioned last time, I am I'm pro legalization and, and, and open on that. Um, it does seem a little kind of woe to to go from from illegal to legal and hey if you're under 21 you can be you know 16 years old and just get you know a, a $50 fine or, or $100 fine um and and no real you know slap on the wrist it does seem especially because of the legalization issues or, or the penalty issues for underage drinking perhaps um it seems a little uh hypocritical is there what i assume conversations were had of, of why that should be the case. Why, why was it important for this to not have those strict penalties for minors? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't, uh, I actually don't know what a minor in possession is for alcohol. Is that a, a misdemeanor crime? Do you guys know? I think it could be. I think, I think it could be. I, and okay. that sounds about right. Um, so maybe it's just one step up from what possession of marijuana is. A misdemeanor instead of a petty misdemeanor. Yeah, but 
yeah, because I just thought that uh, I thought the whole time while the bill was being uh, making its way through the legislature that there would be this ticketable offense for minors in possession. So I was kind of confused about the interpretation that was provided by the House uh, uh, drafter. And um, regardless of what the intent was or was not, uh, it seems as though at the state level, it is a ticketable offense, which I personally think is a lot better situation than having it be completely legal for minors to possess and use because this allows law enforcement to seize uh, a joint that a 12-year-old has while they're walking down a sidewalk and issue a citation instead of just being throwing up their hands and saying, well, I can't do anything about that. I agree. And I appreciate you saying that because I think a lot of times people think that uh, as somebody like yourself that, you know, is is gung-ho, pro-legalization, everything, you know, might just be like, well, you know, freedom's freedom. They should, you know, 12-year-old wants to smoke a joint, they can smoke a joint. So I think I appreciate you you saying that and, and having that viewpoint because I do think that is important that there are certain limits to, to things of this sort. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth bringing up Wisconsin since the uh, talk or the allusion to alcohol was brought up in Wisconsin. I think even at a restaurant, if you have your parent with you, you're able to have a beer uh, when you're younger than 21. And so there might be some circumstances where there's an allowance. But even in Wisconsin, you can't be 12 years old with a beer can in your hand walking down the sidewalk. And so I think that we have to have some sort of guardrails here. And uh, also, I think going from one pendulum side to the other pendulum side is probably not good for public policy. So if we want to have a debate uh, at the legislature about whether to remove completely this petty misdemeanor possession charge, then it should be done in an open and honest way instead of a sleight of hand that the drafters thought that they were kind of tricking people about. Do you think that there will be in the upcoming session? Now, there's been some House Republicans who have come and called for, I think, a special session to address and deal with this. Obviously, when the news broke, and first of all, a tip of the cap to you for helping be a resource to resolve this. It's so important that we have an active observers of the legislative process, but you were right in there and you were able to be a resource and understand this issue with such precision to help be a resource in resolving this. But because it was the intent of the Senate author, as she described, to have this impl- to, to have this be allowed, do you think there's going to be now a legislative debate either in a special session or next session to address this issue? Um, I don't really expect this to raise to rise to the level of needing a special session um, because it seems as though the the call that was made by the House Republican members that you mentioned for a special session it is a bit unwarranted because it it is a petty misdemeanor at the state level. Um, but yeah, any time. Well, I mean, alcohol was legalized. But we ended alcohol prohibition. A very, very long time ago, but we still have conversations and debates and changes to the alcohol laws uh, almost every single year. And so I'm I'm expecting there to continue to be robust discussions about how to deal with cannabis policy moving forward. Um, and likely we'll see changes happen this next session and, and maybe even on this specific topic. Uh, but I don't think that it requires the legislature to come back immediately to try to deal with this issue. There was a lot of scrutiny this legislative session about legalization. Where does the disconnect happen in the process where a Senate author and a House author of both both parties sometimes will be cross on what the intent of legislation is? Mm, Yeah, that that kind of changes on, I think, every bill and every uh, relationship that... uh, different chief authors of bills have. And so I'm not exactly privy to this specific disconnect that occurred. 
Um, and actually, I don't think that Representative Stevenson has even spoken explicitly on the record as to whether this was his intent or not. I think that was an assumption made by the journalist. Um, okay. But yeah, it, I the legislative process really comes down to a massive amount of communication. And when those things break down on any level, whether you're colleagues and agree with an issue or your opponents and you're disagreeing, um, if you can't have proper communication between one another, then things can go awry quite quickly. One final question for you going forward with the legislation. There's a lot of latitude in this bill for local units of local cities, municipalities to make decisions. Do you think it's possible that a couple of years from now, we could have a situation where there are certain cities who are more pro marijuana legalization than others in a sense that that some cities have locked it down a bit more while others are making it more open and that that's going to be a, a little bit of an economic incentive for certain people. If it's a part of their lifestyle and they want it to be around them, they'll move to a particular town or, or not. Do you think it could shape up that way? Yeah, definitely. I think that this type of legislation that we have uh, makes it so people can very easily vote with their feet. And if they don't like their own city council or their own mayor's decisions on cannabis policy, that they can move uh, to a town close by that has a different stance on things. And really, this is uh, a conservative concept that um, local units of government can, are best positioned to uh, make policies for their own constituency. Um, and so I guess kudos to some extent for the DFL in agreeing and, and setting up a policy that allows local units of government to have uh, a chunk of um, dominion over these sorts of issues so that they can make decisions that best reflect their own populace. And also, so the populace, if they disagree, um, can engage with the electoral process and, you know, maybe vote them out. Yeah, I'm going to look to Becky here. Uh, Becky, as you and I both know, we're Republicans. We're a party of local control. And it's interesting, as the way Curtis framed that up, it seems that it was the, the Democrats who left a lot of that to the local, their, their local city governments and lower governments to determine what should be done in this particular instance. It's a very interesting perspective that he just dialed in on. Absolutely. In fact, I've, I have seen it framed up with some criticism that it, it puts an extra burden on, on municipalities or cities to, to make those determination um, when, when you're exactly right. I mean, Republicans, I, I, I will say, aren't necessarily uh, known for uh, being straightforward. Uh, I think some hypocrisy upon beliefs is uh, something I guess both parties can 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 have their faults in. Um, but no, I, I think I, I appreciate you sharing that because I do think that is something that a lot of people overlook as well and potentially see more as a burden than something that is um, up to, to local control because local control is how things should be done. I don't know how I would have voted in the legislature, but that local component aspect would have been very, would have been something that I want to see. The ability for local local cities, local governments to have a say in the implementation that would have been important for me as part of the discussion. So I'm glad that that's there. Curtis, you've been incredibly kind twice to come on. You, as Becky noted, you're our first two-time guest, and we really appreciate that, you coming back on and on this subject. And we hope we can use you again as a resource as more develops. I'm sure there will. You have a very open demeanor about this, a tremendous resource, and we're just very appreciative of the discussion. And it's nice to see you face-to-face, -face. nice to meet you this way again. You've been on the show before, but I was off. But just thank you again for coming on and being a resource and answering our questions and being so accessible. Yeah, of course. I just love uh, coming on the show. I, I've mentioned this last time I was on, but I've been listening to the show since before I was even invited on to it. And I plan on continuing to listen, uh, even if you don't have me back for a third time. So Thanks for your kindness and uh, appreciate chatting with you guys. We'll keep it. We'll have you on again. Where can people follow you at again on social media? Yeah, I'm Captain Curtis, and that's Curtis with a K on Twitter. And then my new company is BluntStrategies.com. So check it out.
Love it. Thanks so much, Curtis. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. We are now joined with our second guest of the day, Mayor Luke Hellier. Luke is a friend of both Michael and I, a former colleague, um, has been active uh, on campaigns in government um, and has a great background in, in public relations, public policy. Thanks for joining us today, Mayor Luke. Yeah, thanks for having me on, you guys. So we know that you have, um, it's been great to see you uh, do radio interviews, see you on TV and print, um, talking about what the legalization of recreational marijuana means for for local governments, local elected officials. Um, Can you just break it down for us on the initial, what you are doing in Lakeville um, and how this this new law is impacting you as a mayor? Sure. So we, it's kind of an interesting situation because... um, you know, typically after every legislative session, the League of Minnesota Cities get, gets together either in Duluth or Rochester, and we have several hundred city council and mayor folks that kind of do a legislative recap, figure out what the impact will be, um, you know, on, on us after what happens in St. Paul. And this last year, we met in Duluth. We had probably a pretty packed room on a cannabis issue. It's the most I've actually seen in one room at one time of city council mayors talking about one issue. And their lobbyist, Alex Hassel, did a great job kind of outlining um, all of the the things that kind of happened and, and what cities then need to do from a regulatory standpoint. And, you know, I, what's fascinating to me is I bet if you asked every single person in that room, none of them said I got into local government to either promote or regulate cannabis. But all of a sudden, this was kind of dropped in our lap. Um, you know, and, and so throughout the process, uh, during the legislature, you know, they had a whole bunch of hearings and, um, you know, we're, we're soliciting some feedback from cities uh, and didn't really end up adopting much of what we had kind of pushed on. Um, and so kind of one of the things that we we are allowed to do uh, is is related to zoning on where dispensaries will be. Uh, and so we're kind of working through that whole process on where we think the businesses should be set up. Every city has to allow one dispensary license for every 12,500 residents. So Lakeville's got to have six opportunities for dispensaries starting in 2025. In addition, we're also have the ability to um, put some parameters on public smoking and vaping, which is what we'll be doing at an upcoming city council meeting is to uh, basically not allow smoking and vaping in parks, sidewalks, and other public areas of the city. And so we had a work session about that a couple of weeks ago, and then we'll vote on it at an upcoming meeting. So when you say you need to have the opportunity for six, does that mean you as a city government are going to be seeking out applicants or is it just you have six essentially permits um, allowed if six interested business owners um, come forward? Right. So it's if they come forward, you know, we have the ability for six. So it's similar, you know, Lakeville is a municipal liquor town, but a lot of cities like Burnsville has a limit. Ten liquor stores is the max that they'll allow. And no other stores can open unless, you know, one closes and they decide to grant that license to another one. Um, and so the same thing happens in a lot of cities with garbage companies, for instance. So Lakeville has six garbage companies. Uh, and so you, you, we don't have to have any more, but that's how many that we have right now. And so it's a really convoluted formula they came up with because each city has to have so many available. But... If the county that you're in, and so Dakota County needs to allow 36, if Dakota reaches that 36 before we meet our six, we can then put a cap on more licensees. So it's it's really like they were trying very, very hard to make it so that cities and counties couldn't put much um, framework around the actual business operations of dispensaries. And if you think about Lakeville, we're in the corner of Dakota County, you know, Scott County is three miles away and they have a whole different standard. So there's going to be plenty of opportunity for dispensaries um, in a certain region. And to be honest, I would be shocked if between five and 10 years from now, we're not talking about a whole bunch of mom and pop pot shops going out of business because they're not able to compete with, you know, some larger scale operations. Mayor Hellier, from your perspective and you deal with the legislative session on a regular basis, do you think you're do you think that there was enough communication on the impacts of this legislation 
and how it would impact local units of government prior to it being enacted? Uh, I wouldn't say so. I think they basically, I think the legislature took the tactic that, you know, we are going to write this legislation. We're including partners along the way for discussion, but it's up to cities uh, and our attorneys to figure out exactly what it means in each location. So it's, and it, you know, I think that's probably similar in a lot of cases, you know, when they, they're just, there wasn't a lot of conversation about some of the key proposals. I mean, if you listen to Senator Port, her interview in MinPost recently um, said that she her intention on a few different things were never part of the public conversation. I mean, there was no public conversation about cities and sidewalks and parks. I think the assumption from cities was that um, the recreational law would line up with the medicinal law, which means so medicinal marijuana. All that same track. Um, and then the other aspect is is related to some of this minor consumption stuff that they, they were trying to do. And does that left cities with having to scramble in, in some ways to figure out where you should go in this? Because aside from what you make as decisions you guys, you make as with your city council and, and the rest of the electeds in your area, it does have the, does the, does have the potential to pit city against city. Uh, and in terms of the framework as to where this goes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, for just an instance on the public consumption stuff, um, I was talking to some colleagues in Burnsville. They're going to kind of just let the law play out. Apple Valley is kind of a week ahead of us. They already had passed some bans on it. I know Prior Lake has got some bans on the public consumption. I don't think Egan is. So you're going to have a situation where people may, in the long term, choose to live somewhere based on their pot laws. I mean, if that's something you really care about. It's just one more thing on kind of a checklist, if, you, if that makes sense. So what does it look like today uh, in Lakeville regarding legalization of marijuana? What, 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 what can people see? What can they experience? What can they, what can they smell? Give us kind of an understanding of what, what's going on in Lakeville today. Yeah, I mean, basically today, unless you are growing at home or driving to Red Lake or White Earth Tribal Reservation, you're continually buying on the black market. I mean, there's no authorized retailing anywhere in the state. Um, so really what the legislature did is kind of gas up um, illicit sales, in my opinion, over the next 18 months because you can consume it, but there's no way to actually purchase it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, there will be a situation in the coming weeks where if you go to downtown Lakeville and um, you want to light up a joint, you will be asked to not i mean we we're not going to be out there ticketing but we have the tools where if a business is concerned that someone's impacting them by you know smoking in public you know we can talk to code enforcement or police to either ask them to not and you know i think we're kind of taking an education standpoint to say hey it's not allowed here less of a uh, a law enforcement first standpoint um, but we still have the ability to give somebody um, a petty misdemeanor ticket if they they are kind of violating that but that will change based on potentially someone crossing a city line. If you Absolutely. look at yeah. that Lakeville borders on, someone could cross into Farmington, into Burnsville, and there could they could be met with a different standard, correct? Right. So I live actually on the Lakeville-Burnsville border, and just maybe 400, well, 500 yards from my house is a Burnsville city park. So in theory, somebody could be smoking pot in that park that's near my house in Lakeville, just because that's how... I mean, city lines are so blurry. I mean, you have instances where, um, you know, we, we might share a, a school district, but the city lines are, are pretty, you know, blurry because we back up to each other's backyards, especially in the suburbs. I mean, it's pretty, pretty typical. Now, is there going to be any resource website or anything where folks may be able to that you that you know of that may be able to like go to and see where it can be legal where you know where those lines and limits boundaries exist um that's a good question i mean i think at some point the office of cannabis management once it finally gets stood up will have resources i think my suggestion to them will be in the future that maybe you want to be able to identify which cities have certain rules just to help educate but i mean that's an open process i guess yesterday that position for that commissioner closed. It had 150 applicants. I mean, this is, I mean, that, that thing is like, we're, we're going so quickly down 
this legalization path without actually doing any of the regulatory work beforehand, which is like so counterintuitive in previous situations in Minnesota where, you know, you pass legislation, the agency does rulemaking, everything's rolled out. And then 18 months later, whatever, it becomes law. Like, I, I don't think it's just good, no matter what the issue is, I don't think it's good lawmaking to rush something out and then, you know, build the, the plane in the air afterwards. Taking off your mayoral hat and putting on your political hat, do you think that maybe some of the short-sightedness or, you know, putting the cart before the horse comes from the Democrats just so badly wanting to to legalize marijuana versus seeing everything through? Yeah, I think certainly. I mean, if you look at everything they did this last session, there was certainly a rush um, and mistakes made. You know, you look at the tax bill, for instance. So I think there was politics that played out internally in their caucus that they knew that if they if they waited, um, and, and I think their argument to their defense is they're like, well, we've been talking about this for a long time, you know, so what's the point of, of still hashing out? No pun intended, but you know, we, we, um, you know, that to them, I think they felt like they had the perfect piece of legislation, which, you know, they had a lot of hearings. I'll give them credit, but it got to the point towards the end of, you know, the process where the league of cities and the association of counties had, you know, 90 seconds in committee to weigh in on something. And it was all again, done behind the scenes, in offices, back room, deal stuff. Nothing was done out in the open. And I think that's where there's some frustration, at least from my part. Mayor, you are, aside from being a mayor, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a citizen. You, at the beginning of our interview with you, you talked about how it wasn't your expectation or plan that you'd be tinkering as much as you were or dealing with the implementation of this legislation. Give our listeners a perspective across all of the kind of various hats that you wear that I described, what you've learned about this. What should parents, spouses, citizens know, both pros and cons or things that you've learned that would be helpful for us, our listeners to know? Yeah, I mean, I think the tough, it's really a tough thing to answer right now, because as I mentioned, there's just so much unknown about what this will look like down the road. I think the intention is that this will just be another regulated, um, you know, uh, substance like alcohol that will have a lot of parameters and promises of education and tax revenue and all these things. And I think it's just too early to tell exactly what it means. And so my encouragement is if you don't live in a city like Lakeville, that's kind of tackling this, I'd encourage your city council to do that. Um, certainly if that's kind of the community you want to live in where there's some um, restrictions or at least um, some thoughtfulness around it. It's not the wild west. And, um, you know, we, we took a different approach. There were other cities last year that did a moratorium on the low potency edibles and seltzers, for instance. And we just said, you know, it's going to be out there, you're going to be able to buy it online. So if they're going to have retail sales, we should do a licensing um, product just like we do for tobacco and alcohol. So we can do compliance, meaning we can send somebody in that's under 21 into a store, see if they're able to buy it. And if they are, then we can penalize them. So we felt we were able to protect the community better um, by building out some of that licensing. And so I just, I mean, I, I think there's just so many unknowns. And I think it's just one more thing that kids will have to worry about is, you know, it's very readily accessible. I think if you read the legislation, they don't want edibles to look like they're for kids. But, you know, if you buy a pack of gummies right now in Minnesota, they look like candy. So I, I think, you know, we, it, we've alcohol has been legal-ish for 100 years since prohibition, and every year there seems to be a tweak at the legislature to liquor consumption laws. I would imagine that marijuana would be the same. So if I'm a dispensary and an association of dispensaries, I'm going to hire a lobbyist and a lawyer because every year there's going to be something different, um, you know, because you can't think of everything. But I, I think it's just really important for parents and, and community leaders to pay attention as this stuff rolls out. Is is this, and this is what I've noticed, is the smell. Is that mm -hmm. one of the, is that the, the largest kind of nuisance component that people are aware of right now? Not, we're not dealing with the potential yeah. impairment that could, that we could be dealing with, but is that kind of the main issue right now that people are wrestling with and how they handle that? Yeah, I think there's two major issues. One is the smell, as you mentioned, because we're not going to, we're not banning edibles and seltzers, like, you know, because that's, if you're popping a gummy in a park or a brown, whatever you're doing, 
you're really not going to impact people around you um, as long as you're responsibly using the substance, just like we allow beer and wine to be consumed in our parks, right? As long as you're responsible, it's in a cup and not a glass, all that kind of thing. So I think that's one component is the smell of smoke is really what's a driving factor. The second is the amount of training and investment we will need to do with our public safety and law enforcement partners is immense. There's no test for current under the influence marijuana use um, like there is with alcohol. Um, and so it's it's similar to say, oh, well, if you took an Ambien and went out driving, like there's no test for that either. But at the same time, like, you know, if somebody falls asleep while they're driving, we're going to cite them. So it's going to be, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of cases of people, I think, maybe not rightfully, um, cited for DUI or DWI. And it's going to be led up to the courts and be very expensive um, because there isn't a test bill. So, yeah, you definitely run under the influence. Um, and so that's going to be, I think that's going to be a major challenge and it's going to be a sore point. So my recommendation is if you're going to consume pot, do not drive at all. Or if you've consumed pot in the last 24, 48 hours, definitely don't drive because you could have a serious legal issue on your hands. And I think that that's, that's very real. Mayor Hellier, you've been incredibly generous and patient with your time this morning. We appreciate you coming on. Where can people follow you on social media or other things to follow what you're doing, your brand and everything else? Yes, I'm, uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and I probably use Twitter the most next to Facebook and then probably LinkedIn the least, but just Luke Hellier is, is my account. So feel free to, to connect with me. And you know, I've had, you know, one of the things that's been helpful with social media and this is I've been able to connect with other city council people from other cities that I have relationships with to share um, kind of what they're doing. We've had some conversations with those in Oakdale and Duluth and Prior Lake, and um, those have been positive. And, and, you know, those relationships wouldn't be as strong if we didn't, interact frequently on social media so it's good well you've been i know becky and i were interested in having you on you've been a tremendous voice and resource and a source of information and very fair and balanced way and we appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective but also following you in the news and your interviews on this subject been very much appreciated thank you so we hope to have you on again if this wasn't too painful and maybe on another subject that comes your way but just want to say thanks again for coming on and we hope to yeah. have you again in the future. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Luke. Two great guests. Thank you for lining those up. I think interesting to hear from Curtis on the push to legalize and, and what that means from Mayor Hellier about what it means for, for local electeds and, and cities and towns across the metro area in particular. Um, it, I think I uh, have a number of takes. Like I've said before, I do support the legalization of recreational marijuana. I do think this is a good step forward. I do think, um, I mean, starting out my my overall recap is, man, do I feel like, again, the legislature really dropped the ball on seeing things through and writing good, concrete, well thought out pieces of legislation. And, and I think that this is proof in that with the minor consumption um, penalties aspect of things. Um, and, and also one that I saw, I read in the Star Tribune a couple of days ago, um, the Star Tribune editorial board had a line that they wrote three days ago, regrettably in its zeal to pass the new legalization bill, the Minnesota, the legislature also appears to have made Minnesota one of the few states to allow smoking or vaping weed allowable on public property. Potentially, this could mean streets, sidewalks, public parks, plazas, and other outdoor public gathering spaces. Um, to me, when you you know when when the DFL loses the strip editorial board, um, I think that's telling, and for them to come out and say regrettably, Minnesota is one of the few to kind of um, allow this or, or, you know, not write something into law preventing this, um, I think was, was a, was a big, a stark comment to see from the Star Tribune. And what is your perspective? I mean, we touched on it a little bit with the interview with, with, with Mayor Hellier, but I think there was a speed by which they just wanted to, to pursue this. And there wasn't much of any restraint when it came to a lot of the legislation that they put forward, is that would that be your perspective on it? A hundred percent. I think it's kind of um, one of those things that they've just been itching to get done. Uh, I mean, maybe even similarly on the Republican side to wanting to overturn Roe v. v. Wade and then the floodgates open, right? And and you're just able to do it and you just glom on it and go. I think with this, it really was the legislature 
so badly have been arguing for this, you know, that it's surprising to me that it wasn't all wrapped up in a nice little bow with everything very well thought out because I feel like this has been something we've been hearing from DFL legislators for the past, I mean, decade at least. Um, I think even Curtis said he had been working on it for, you know, 10, 11 years. So um, it's surprising to me that some of those things were not as well thought out, that they didn't have the good debates. You know, we even heard, you know, different associations of Minnesota counties and Minnesota cities that those groups were not even given more than, you know, 90 seconds, two minutes to, to um, participate. And, and those are ones that I typically would assume or would, would categorize as friendlier to the DFL uh, side of things. So the fact that they're, they're just, again, I mean, how many interviews, I feel like we should have a tally mark of how many different pieces of legislation, testimony was not allowed, public input was not allowed. And here we are, not even, you know, a couple months after session has ended and trying to work out issues because it just wasn't a well-written law. Yeah. Here's here's my take in listening to both of the interviews. First of all, with Curtis, incredibly, I think, responsible in his perspective and view on the issue. And the fact that he was, for being such a proponent of it or so supportive of it, understanding that having minor consumption or use of this is just bad public policy and bad health policy. I thought that was insightful on his part, and I appreciate his perspective. As a dad, as a parent, as I have concerns about that immediately. And the fact that I think that there was a disagreement between what the House, what the Senate author intention was and what other people's perception was, I think is frustrating. And I think we've heard as you've pointed out, there have been a number of examples where we've discussed that on this podcast and others have raised those concerns too about the lack of, I think, transparency and what intentions were, but also being in such a speedy hurry to get stuff done that they're not understanding the full ramifications of it. And it's surprising, a little frustrating. And I hope that there's lessons to be learned from this process. I do think to piggyback off what Mayor Hellyer said, my largest concern with the legalization, aside from the aspects of, of the kids, which is an underage consumption, which is surprising that that has become an issue, I thought that would have been addressed, is the public safety component. As I've discussed before on the show, I had a DWI in 2013. I pled guilty. I've been a volunteer with Minnesotans for Safe Driving and other organizations talking about the concerns for safe roads, and I am concerned about distracted driving, impaired driving of any sort, and I am concerned about the law enforcement perspective as to whether this is going to lead to more issues behind behind the wheel of motor vehicles. I have kids that are about to drive, that are learning to drive right now, and that's a scary p- moment for a, a parent to go through. But then having this new dynamic in there is just something that is concerning for me. I have a lot of questions. I will disclose, I've never smoked marijuana before. I don't know if I will. I don't know that it's for me. I also have concerns and questions. I'm a, I have a conceal and carry permit and there's concerns about how it would impact that. And so I don't have any plans in the near future to partake in it in any way. I'm also not a prude in a sense that I'm gonna pass judgment on those who partake in legal activities. That being said, I live near a park the smell is not going to be nice. I live in Egan. I live near a park. I'm not going to be a fan of the smell. As someone who sometimes is in downtown St. Paul, I think we both experience this, the, the smell that can sometimes happen from it. It has a pungent smell, and which is different, as Mayor Hellier described, from some of the other kind of things that go on in city parks related to alcohol and edibles and other types of stuff. So I think there's some nuance, there's some opportunities to clean some things up. And I think both guests made a good point about what, and something that we've talked about before is that there's an opportunity down the road to clean and clean up some of this stuff. But I will say one last time that what I have seen from this legislative session, the DFL majorities, they have been, I think, less introspective on how their process may have produced some bad results related to legislation. And I think they're the lesson that they could learn from this particular legislation, which is slowing down, getting input from all stakeholders so everyone knows what's being passed. 
And and one last comment I have on that is, uh, well, two, of course, I can't just narrow it down to one, um, is I think Mayor Hellier made a great point about that it is legal and we don't have a commissioner. We don't have anybody tasked with leading up this situation, which is just kind of wild on its face, right? I mean, to have, you would think typically you get somebody in there, you get them to build their team and then, you know, figure out how to roll things out. And this was just kind of like, okay, it's legal. Um, And I think, you know, I would like to consider you and I relatively in the know about things. And, And I think that one of the issues with this is um, there just really hasn't been a great rollout of what is legal, where it's legal, how it's legal, what's illegal. I mean, I I just feel like they're, you know, even just a a typical PSA campaign of, you know, you can't do this, you can do this, you know, uh, different things. If you're a gun carrier, if you're a parent and have children with you, you know, there are so many unknown questions um, that should have answers but those answers have not been relayed to the general public, or at least not that I have seen. Um, and I and I think that that in itself is is you know questionable. Of of there's going to be a lot of questions out there from people who do not support it, but also pe- from people who do support it and say, hey, I want to you know consume this. I want to do it legally. I don't know where I can. I don't know when I can. I don't know what restrictions are on me. Can I do it if I have my gun near me or in my house? You know, I, I think there are. A lot of questions, even from people who want to safely, legally um, partake in a legal activity that, uh, you know, is now legal under Minnesota law. So it, it, it's disappointing, not surprising, but um, it was great conversation and, and I'm grateful we got to see, uh, you know, two takes on it. And one more topic that is just coming up as we are recording this episode is um, an article that I just saw, Star Tribune, a form of reparations. Minnesota will send money to communities harmed by marijuana prohibition. So it sounds like um, it says largely overlooked during discussions of the state capitol, but this can renew grant program was tucked in the Minnesota Recreational Marijuana bill. Um, it awards has $15 million that are coming from tax um, taxes of the marijuana, 10% tax on marijuana product sales, um, is going to be have a grant program. Um, some individuals, it says it could even go to uh, people who were convicted, families of people who were convicted for marijuana offenses um, and community. Now, I have mixed feelings on this. Now, as we have discussed, I do support the legalization of marijuana. Um, reparations, though, I mean, laws were laws, and these laws were were broken um, by these individuals. And so to put $15 million annually um, is a lot of money when there's so many different aspects of life that need money. Our schools need money. Our nursing homes need money. Yes, it is taxes from the sales of this product. Um, I I don't know. I just don't love the feeling of it. I think that it is questionable um, at best. I think it is very, again, why did we not hear anything about this? This seems like something, had it been properly vetted, properly discussed, there would have been pushback appropriately. Um, Even if it was still, can you know, ended up being in the bill that was eventually passed and signed into law, conversation should have been had about it. And and it very much seems, unless I missed something, it, it was not that case. What what are your thoughts on this? Well, the article where I'm referring to is by Ryan Faircloth, a form of reparation. Minnesota will send money to communities harmed by marijuana prohibition. As he describes it in the second paragraph, the quote, can renew grant program tucked in Minnesota's expansive new recreational marijuana law. The phrase tucked in, there's been, there was less transparency. There wasn't a ton of transparency just by using the phrase tucked in. I will also say to you, Senator Port using the word reparation, that is an incredibly politically charged word on both sides. And there's a little bit of a pattern that we can piggyback off of from previous conversations that I think Senator Port has gone out there with some statements about things that she perceived to be the intention of legislation that others didn't. We discussed in, in an interview that we recorded today about some potential miscommunication between the House and Senate authorship on some of this, these languages. Language. Senator Port is 
being clear that this is a form of reparation. She was also very clear about the legislation regarding minors underage possession of marijuana, that that was her intention. And so it seems that in a lot of these interviews, after the fact, she's being much more blunt and direct than she was when she was carrying this legislation in the Senate. Now, I want to be fair. I haven't examined the full record. Maybe she was transparent and candid about this. But my sense is, had she discussed reparations, that would have just the use of that word in this kind of politically charged environment would have led to a much broader discussion about this program. And so I think that Senator Port is, if I want to be fair, as fair as I can be, I think that Senator Port is being much more precise and clear with her words than she was during the legislative process. And I want to hold myself to a standard that I'm certainly going to take some time between this and our next episode to re-examine how clear she was during the debate about this issue. But I have my doubts as to whether words like reparation were used. I could be wrong. I think it's pretty fair. I think that we would have seen it, at the very least, if it wasn't covered, I think we would have seen it on Twitter. Um, The fact that it is the lead-off byline or title on this article, I think is pretty telling that it wasn't something that uh, was discussed before. Um, additionally, this is, she said um, in this article, Senator Port said that there she was not aware of any other state grant program like this in the nation, which I'm all for like Minnesota being a pioneer of, of certain things, but there's likely a reason that that this hasn't been, been tried in other um, areas. I do also want to point out one more thing in this um, is that uh, GOP state rep Nolan West uh, was one he voted in favor of legalizing marijuana, had issues with this. Um, He said that he believes that this would be wasted and it will be just a way to funnel money to DFL districts. So um, hot take on that. And I guess it will be interesting to see. It does seem like there are some Rather, you know, it, it, I guess I, it's this is my frustration, and it does seem like there are some what looks like some strict uh, parameters about what the grant program could actually go to impact. But again, it's going to be at the discretion of this um, new cannabis office of cannabis management does that doesn't have a commissioner that is not up and running. So, like, it, it there's just so many different things that seem to have fallen through the cracks that need to should have been ironed out need to have been ironed out and this I, in my mind i i believe is is one of those yeah i don't want i think you're spot on and this is a subject that we've discussed before which is the lack of transparency right. what i will say and i'm i'm setting myself up to be wrong but i am going to spend some time in the next week reviewing some of the floor debate and some of the discussion on that because my perception again i could be wrong is that the level of clarity that Senator Port and, and others are offering right now was not the same language that was used during the debate. I will be happy to be wrong if that's the case, but there seems to be a little bit of a pattern developing here. And I'd be curious to see what the fallout of that could be, the reactions that could be long-term. But as you correctly noted to go get into the subject before we ended for the day, this just broke as as we were recording and we wanted to take a couple minutes just to talk about it, but I'm sure we're going to talk about this more down the road. I believe it. Now it's time for a tasty treat. Food fight. You ready? I'm ready. And um, so as we said before, our listeners, we're going to do the food fight. Uh, Becky, you can give the subject. Our, our food fight is over. Top cookies. Now, um, Becky and I know that we're doing top cookies, but we don't. That's all we know. Uh, I'm going to let you know that um, I'm preparing for your list to include a lot of white chocolate or like nuts of some sort. And I'm really not going to, I'm, that's where I'm, that's where I feel this is going to go. And I'm preparing myself to be disappointed. Well, you will be disappointed because I have neither white chocolate nor nuts. But to start things off, I do start, I am starting with, the, I, I got to start with a Girl Scout cookie. I mean, because you got it, right? Um, top Girl Scout cookie, top cookie of choice. Also has a great Aldi knockoff. Um, Samoa's, Caramel Delights, how you would like to call it. Delicious. It's got the, it's a little chewy, a little crunchy. Got the chocolate on the bottom. Man, oh man. I, I could consume a whole thing from Aldi in one sitting. Um, 
it's interesting. We maybe should have talked about this. I have no Girl Scout cookies. Be- I would consider Girl Scout cookie a subset of cookies. So I can do a whole, uh, the whole food fight over Girl Scout cookies. That is my only one. So if we want to come back to top Girl yeah. Scout cookies at a different time, I'm I'm happy to do that. I also have a mix of store-bought and homemade. Same. Okay, good. My top cookie is Oreo. Nothing, be- nothing beats a it's a little basic. Yeah. Well, it's me. Um, nothing. Nothing beats. Uh, nothing beats an Oreo cookie. So that's my number one. Milk or no milk? Are you a dunker? Uh, depends on the mood. Uh, depends on what's going on. I'm not opposed to it, but generally speaking, I mean, it, they do go together very well. Um, no, I, I've got one more follow up. Are you into all of the different offshoots? No, just classic. No. I'm a classic Oreo or double stuff now here's the thing the big take on this um double stuffs have gotten smaller and the mega stuff is what my double stuff was growing up so i'm a fan of if i'm it's a it's a friday night and it's been a a good end of the week uh, i'll I'll take a mega stuff which is old-fashioned double stuff Uh, i do think that oreo's gotten pretty chintzy on the cream over the years nabisco has and so uh I would like to do a plug for more a, a standardized uh, cream allotment, but I'm always top my top pick. All right. Because I had to follow up your basic with my basic chocolate chip cookies. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's interesting. Um, my is mine. Uh, my number two is a standard uh, sugar cookie. Um, just a plain sugar cookie, but with a caveat. Made by my daughters. Uh, my daughters recently made me a set of, made a whole batch of sugar cookies. Hands down the best sugar cookie that I've had. Uh, and it, it quickly rose to number two. Had we done this uh, a few weeks ago or a month or so ago, sugar cookies would not have been on the list. But it's now on the list. Uh, sugar cookies made by my daughters. Fantastic. Love it. Um, my number three are... Trader Joe's pink and whites. Now, if you haven't had them, they're shortbread cookies, kind of like the, uh, they're almost look like the animal crackers that are dipped in like white and pink and have, uh, <laughs> have a little sprinkles in them. Um, I discovered these again. I'm, you know, I, I swear I'm a broken record when it comes to my pregnancy cravings, but discovered them while pregnant, literally had to like tell myself I had to wait, consume them over two days, at least not just one. Because that is one, you know, shout out Jeff Cole. I didn't consume them all in one sitting, but I contemplated it. Nice. Uh, my number three is a chocolate chip cookies. Oh, okay. Free chocolate chip. If I'm going to go store-bought, I'm going to go Chips Ahoy or Pepperidge Farm. Um, but, I'll, but chocolate chip cookie. And again, just to be clear, uh, standard chocolate, no white chocolate, no nuts, nothing of any sort. There's mm-hmm. also no peanut butter in my cookies. Or anything at all. So these are just straight, straight cookies. Number four for me are around Christmas time, a good old spritz cookie. They melt in your mouth. Delicious. What's a spritz cookie? They're like the little ones. They almost look like shortbread. You know, usually they're like in the shape of like a Christmas tree, sometimes sure. straight or green, you know, just little tiny pop them in your mouth, melt away. Um, this was a, my number four was a surprise. Um, but it's rocketed up the charts, um, not as fast as sugar cookie, um, but it's I've had it frequently over the last few months. I've become a big fan. Snickerdoodle, Snickerdoodle cookies, and um, I'm also a fan of. I'm a big ice cream man, um, and I'm a ice cream truck comes by the house. I'll get the chips galore, which is or like the old chem switch, which is two chocolate chip cookies with ice cream and vanilla ice cream in the middle. Um, I've been having a lot of these uh, snickerdoodle ones. Snickerdoodle with vanilla ice cream. It's just top shelf. Yum. Good. Okay. Sounds pretty good. I'm wrapping things up. Now, I did waver back and forth quite a bit between between two here. I'm going Delta Biscoff cookies. When you're on on a Delta flight and you get the little cookies... You're literally picking a cookie from an airplane. Oh my god, have you had them? They're so good. You can like buy them in the store. That's it. Yeah. Hey, don't be hating it. It's delicious. Even on cookies, you found a way to disappoint me. Airplane food. 
Airplane food. Um, my number five is oatmeal raisin cookies. And they have to have raisins in them. See, gross. I'm generally of the opinion that everything is better with raisins and gravy. Uh, I'm a big raisin guy, and so raisins are good. All right. Well, there's all sorts of issues. I, I'm, I'm fully supportive of the gravy comment. Um, maybe we, we talk have top gravy dishes next up. Um, but raisins, no. Chocolate. Got to be chocolate. I'm throwing a curveball here, but I think we should do this. We're coming close to the state fair, and we're also coming close to uh, the start of the NFL season. We've discussed off air, based on input from a dedicated listener of our podcast, that we should pivot on food takes. Mm -hmm. So here's, I think, a good good plan. We're going to do some stuff over the state fair that we're going to announce. I think we do a couple more food takes. We do state fair. Then we get into the NFL season. Yeah, baby. And then we're going to start doing the food takes. You're going to take a hiatus, and we're going to get into football picks. Love it. All right? That's our plan. You're going down. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, Tweets of the week. Tweet of the week. You want to kick us up this week? I do. And and, um, I'm going to break with protocol because when we first started doing tweets of the week, uh, Becky's would always make me sad and cry. And I've purposely stayed away from doing any sad tweets of the week. But this one was so heartwarming. We lost Pee Wee Herman a couple days ago. He passed away. Paul Rubens, the actor who played Pee Wee Herman's, he passed away. And if you're a fan of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which I am, it's an absolutely hilarious movie. There's a famous scene in the movie where Pee Wee goes to the Alamo because he thinks his stolen bike is there. And he asks if where the basement is in the Alamo. And there is no basement in the Alamo. But after Paul Rubens passed, the Alamo tweeted out this. They said, quote, visitors have asked daily about the basement at the Alamo thanks to the 1985 movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure. We're grateful to Paul Rubin's unforgettable contribution to pop culture. There is no basement in the Alamo Church, but there is one under our gift shop. Rest in peace. I just thought it was really nice. I was a big Pee-wee Herman fan. I I remember watching Pee-wee's Playhouse growing up. Pee-wee's Big Adventure is just an absolutely classic movie. I'm probably going to watch it later tonight. And it was just sad to see him go, but it was a nice tweet. Uh, that is a very nice tweet. I have to say my, one of my college roommates also had Pee Wee's Playhouse on VHS. And so we'd indulge in that every once in a while. It was, yeah, it's, it's entertaining at its best. Um, mine is a little bit different, but is, um, a tweet that I have from at Bonnie Pons says millennials love podcasting, but hate talking on the phone, which is just a podcast. No one is recording. And I thought it was just spot on. I hate talking on the phone. I'll text all day, email. Spot on. Yeah. So that's my tweet. Thanks, Bonnie. That's spot on. That's spot on. All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. Again, the website is bbbreakpod.com, and we are on Twitter at bbbreakpod. The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky will return next week. Have a great one. Bye-bye.